Listeners, Alex with you today, and I'm actually doing something a little different this episode of the Weird Era podcast. I am speaking with an editor at the forefront of queer literature, Jackson Howard. Jackson is an editor at Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux, and it's imprint MCD, where he acquires and edits a broad range of fiction and nonfiction. Writers he publishes include Judith Butler, Brontes Purnell, Sarah Shulman, Catherine Lacey, Imogen Binney, Missouri Williams, Jesse David Fox, and many others. As a writer, his reviews, profiles, and essays about queer life, Dr. Dre, the music video for Jamie Foxx's Blame It, and many <laughs> other important subjects have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Pitchfork, The Cut, Rolling Stone, The Ringer, Them, WLID, Office, Document, and elsewhere. He is also part of the team behind FSG Writers Fellowship and is passionate about efforts to increase transparency and access within publishing at large. He graduated from the University of Michigan in 2016 and is very much a Taurus. Just like me, a couple Taurus babies on the pod today. Jackson, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And honestly, that um, you should have cleared that bio with me. That's like my like like resume all you know, every, like throw everything at the wall bio. So uh, that was embarrassing, but but thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I mean, Srudi and I have actually talked uh, for a while about interviewing you for Weird Era. So I am very pleased and very thankful that we were able to make this happen. Um, that being said, I want to just launch right into this. Let's do it. Um, so it says, I mean, right there in your bio that you're passionate about efforts to increase transparency and access within the publishing industry. Um, we've seen the reckonings happening across different landscapes and workplaces, but can you explain for our listeners uh, specifically what publishing has historically looked like and what you think is currently happening to change this? Yeah, um, you know, like most kind of cultural institutions, publishing has been dominated by who's able to access it. Um, that means on the consumer side, but actually even more critically um, on the production side. And so historically, publishing salaries have been very low. They're still really low, um, but they were even lower. And publishing has always been, at least in America, centered in New York City. And so the combination of those two things has, you know, for the last several, several decades, um, all but made it certain that the only people that could really work in publishing on the editorial side, so that, you know, quote unquote, gatekeepers, um, were those who could afford to support themselves um, in the city on a tiny salary, which means, you know, they have family money and often they're white and cis. Um, and that's kind of where publishing has been for a long time. Of course, there are exceptions. There are a lot of indie presses doing work outside of New York. There's all kinds of asterisks mm-hmm. I could apply to that, but that's, that's basically where the uh, industry has been for a long time. I think now the industry is still very much in that place. And most people would agree. I think now though, there are conversations um, around things, you know, as nebulous as like diversity or unionization um, right. or just greater transparency. They're actually gaining steam and it's not just lip service, you know, again, like any other industry, this is, these are big monoliths that are multinational corporations. And even for the more progressive indie publishers and the ones who are, you know, strictly anti-capitalist or uh, worker owned and stuff like that. Like it's still book publishing. Like you're not, you're not right, making a million right, right. dollars doing this. And 
Um, but what I do say, what I do see is different is the people, you know, is the, the quote unquote gatekeeping happening. Um, I see, you know, I see straight and white editors doing more to learn things, but more importantly, I'm seeing like just different types of voices in the room actually able to acquire and facilitate the publication of books. And that's honestly how things change is that, you know, uh, publishing is assumed that there's only a certain type of reader for a long time, which is like a kind of middle class white person because the people doing the books were those people. And when you open up, you know, who's publishing books to everybody, suddenly everybody's a reader where, you know, they've always been readers, but publishers haven't really known how to get to other types of readers. So that's, that's kind of the, the dance that publishing's doing right now. It, It leaves a lot to be desired, but Um, you know, I've only been doing this for six years, so maybe I don't have the right perspective, but I I do think that we're seeing a little bit of change. Yeah. I mean, and to just kind of jump off of that statement as well, right. Going into my next question is, um, I mean, on the day of this recording, uh, as early as last week, James Patterson stated that older white male authors are finding it difficult to find writing jobs, calling it just another form of racism. Um, I mean, like he's since apologized in a tweet. It was this. It was just this totally tone deaf and like really cringy statement. Um, but I'm curious about your thoughts on it. You know, there's <laughs> definitely a times up kind of response. Mm. Um, but I think there's a possibly a level of competition that these older white male authors have to contend with now that wasn't present before. Um, do you think Patterson is just bitter that he has to up his game now that stories uh, are potentially more diverse in publishing? First of all, he doesn't have to up his game. That man is printing money. Like, like that <laughs> man, and, and this is with no shade to, uh, you know, his representation and the amazing people who publish him, because I know some of those folks and I, you know, he prints money and he's working with a co-writer publicly. You know, he's working with all kinds of people behind the scenes. He He, right. he is in cruise control. And so... That's what gags me about that statement where it's like, why are you so threatened? And it's not a matter, clearly it's not financial. And so you're threatened. Right. It, it goes down to some weird core identity thing. It really goes down to whiteness, I think. I mean, you saw the same kind of uh, backlash when even when women were getting more published. You know what I mean? You saw like the updates of the world, like right. trashing women and gay writers for even attempting to get into their space. And so... Patterson, you know, isn't uh, being pretentious given the nature of his books. Like he's not really ivory towering <laughs> things, um, but it's that same type of, you know, like lashing back at a changing world and a world that he doesn't recognize in the world that isn't necessarily catering to him. But you look at the economics of publishing and the bestseller list, it is still overwhelmingly dominated by white guys. And, you know, the, from our point of view, the the other thing is that publishers will publish a thousand thrillers by white guys because they have the model of James Patterson, right? To, to, oh, this could be the next James Patterson, or this could sell even a third of James Patterson and make us all rich. When you're doing a book by a trans author or a non-white author, uh, and we haven't done a lot of books like that, the models don't exist. And so the pressure for that book to work is 20 times bigger. It's like, well, if this black gay memoir doesn't right. work, you know, maybe I'm going to have to fight harder or my company won't let me do another one. So that that's why whatever he's saying is so nonsensical, because he is still there, there is 
no better position to be in <laughs> in publishing financially and access wise than to be a white guy. And sure, yes, there is so much more visibility now for every other type of writer. But you look at the macro picture, as many people on Twitter did after that statement came out, the economics right. are very glaring and the and the staffing is very glaring at these publishers. Like not much materially has changed and certainly not enough to affect James Patterson's bag, which I can tell you is extremely <laughs> robust. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to keep it real and not, and not get in trouble at the same time. So that's, that's something I'm, uh, I'm, you... I'm learning to do. I'm learning to be better at. <laughs> oh, come on. This is weird era. We want to get everybody in trouble. We want to get ourselves <laughs> into trouble here. Okay, um, but I do actually want to talk um, a little bit about you, Jackson. Mm. Uh, you know, when I was in post-secondary school, I studied English Lit with the idea of eventually finding a career in editing and publishing. Um, yeah. But instead, the bookstore, the bookseller life called to me. Um, how did you end up in this field of work? Was this something that you were always interested in pursuing? Um, so I, I was also an English major, obviously. Um, and I worked for the school paper. Um, I'm a big music nerd. And I was a music editor and I just, I kind of, my dream was like some almost famous vibe. Like I was like, I'm going to be like, amazing, you know, young music critic and, and do that. And then, you know, I poked my head out of Ann Arbor, which is where I was at school. And I was like, oh, right. The real world exists and mm. none of it works the way it's supposed to. And so my, my, my second semester, I, I just applied to some internships and I had no connections in publishing. Um, and I got an internship at FSG. That's literally what happened. And I, and I've been lucky enough to, I was hired and then mentored amazingly and have stayed. Um, that's atypical for a few reasons. One, that is kind of funny enough, like the almost famous pipeline, like to, to intern at your dream company yeah, right. and then be supported and climb <laughs> your way up. Like that's literally not a single one of my friends in publishing have had that experience. And two, you know, I had parents who, when I was making, 33k a year were able to help me with my rent for the you know the first year I was in New York and even a little bit after that so that I wouldn't be you know having to live like two like states away basically to survive here and I'm and I'm open about talking about that because a lot of people are like yeah. it's, it's impossible like oh this starting salary is 40k like like the, the elephant in the room is that people are, are getting help financially and that yeah. needs to be yeah. acknowledged so um, but yeah, I've stayed, that was, that was 20 fall 2016 and I've stayed, uh, ever since, which again, doesn't usually happen. Oftentimes people bounce around, but I just look up to the people I, I work for so much and they, um, they've taken risks with me and in turn, I think mm -hmm. I've, you know, tried as hard as I can just to work my ass off for them and learn as much as I can. And, um, here I am. Um, and how does your queer identity um, influence your line of work and influence how you go about your day-to-day? -day? Uh, well, my day-to-day -day is different, okay? My day-to-day, -day, uh, <laughs> how is my queer identity? I, you know, my day-to-day, -day, I'm like, str like well, okay, then strutting through line of work. Yeah, but... I'm like strutting through these hallways. I am, though, um, <laughs> with my headphones on, listening to, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, no, it, it's, you know, it is... It has become, if not the one of the like defining, tra I don't even know traits, qualities, descriptors. I don't know of my career, and I, mm -hmm. it's I've had to become way more conscious of it than I thought I would be. In the sense that, you know, I tell every young editor just to 
follow their taste. And it's much easier said than done. Depends where you work. Sometimes you work at a corporate publisher. You can't just publish your dream book. You have to publish big books and, you know, whatever. But if you have the chance and if you're reading for fun in particular, read the indie press books, read the books that your favorite bookseller is telling you to read. Like that's the only way to acquire taste in my opinion, which is a very elusive thing and you can't buy it and you can't learn it. Like you just kind of have to live it a little bit. Mm So, um, the way that that has to do with my queerness is, you know, the books that I, that were in my wheelhouse and that still are, were the books that to me both reflected the communities that I live in and that I saw as missing from the way the rest of publishing exists. Like these stories weren't being elevated. And so on a queer level, I, I, Mm -hmm. the first level, I don't just publish, I, I publish very few like white gay men because those stories are represented. I do like seeing my stories out there, but I like them to be kind of challenging and not what you think they're going to be. Um, they're not like trauma mm-hmm. narratives, you know, like I, I, I want to like uplift us and challenge us and do all these types of things. But the danger with doing for me, just doing queer books and that that's everybody, even from Brontes Pernod's a black gay writer, Imogen Benny, you know, a white trans writer is that of course, then it's very easy to get pigeonholed, in that lane and frankly you know i i read so much more than just queer writers and my friends there's so much more like you know i have more friends than just my queer friends and like i I, and that's no shade because i i have friends who just do queer writers i have the opportunity right now to do more than that and i like doing it so a lot of my nonfiction is pop culture based or or is kind of leftist politics or um theory or history and my fiction I do, I do a lot of like weird speculative fiction and um, mm-hmm. kind of like sweeping sagas and I don't know, short stories, whatever that, that isn't queer. I do think my authors are kind of united by like both their risk taking and just how damn good they are. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's, that's the double-edged sword. And that's something that any, you know, uh, you know, marginalized gatekeeper or marginalized creative can tell you is that like, the powers that be are going to want you for your access to communities and stories that they don't have access to. And so it's, it's your responsibility to make sure those stories aren't being exploited, but to also make sure that it's not just lip service. You know what I mean? It's not just identity politics. Like, like, of course I, I do schedule a lot of my queer books, for example, during May and June, as you know, which like pride books, right. Right. But Everybody here at FSG will tell you that, like, the first thing I always say is, like, we will be selling this book year round. I will, let's do it in Pride to get maybe a couple more copies. But, like, I'm just as confident putting my gay books in January or March or September as I am in June. So, you know, that's that's how that impacts me. And the, the one other thing I'll say is that I, and I spoke about this recently in an interview, like, I, I was insecure for a long time being not just not just queer but like having a queer life meaning that you know the way i dressed the way i presented the life i had on the weekends life i had after work you know the friends i had it's publishing is extremely social and networky but you know i was and still am going to like warehouse parties and like i'm out late (laughs) on the weekends like you know i'm 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 taking friday and monday off for pride like i'm going to hang out with my friends i'm going to like be out there and I realized that that you know that's how Brontes and I like bonded like that's how I've met 
that's how I met, you know, Tori Peters, like who's still a friend of mine. Like right. that, that's how I've met so many of these people, because like, if you're only looking at MFA programs and you're only looking, you know, in, in fellowships, like you're, you're not getting everybody. <laughs> and sometimes the coolest, oftentimes the coolest people are the ones who aren't there and are the ones that are out late as hell hanging out with me. And, and we meet like that. Not to say I'm like networking at three in the morning when I'm in Bushwick, but like it's, but I, I try to keep the eye out. A, level but a little bit. It, right? There is a little bit. Yeah. And that's, that's a yeah. whole other conversation about like the work life boundaries <laughs> that I feel like are disappearing in my life. But, um, you know, it's all coalesced in a cool way. And now when you have a book like Brontes, I can get it to, you know, the gay Brooklyn comedians. I can get it to the right. like ballroom girls. Like, you know, I, I can get it to people who have never been targeted as readers by mainstream you know, corporation, but based on this, like, you know, kind of opaque understanding of community, at least I can hook them up with a book and at least they can promote it in a way that feels genuine to them. And it actually might get somebody to buy the book. So in my opinion, that helps everybody. It's like, that's like genuine influencer life. That's not like paid post shit. Like that's like, wow, I want to support the people around me. And in that way, being queer is the most special thing about, you know, about my life and the most special thing about, about being able to do this job. Yeah, and I mean, people often ask at this bookstore, like, why we carry so much queer literature. And I mean, apart from most of us being queer people ourselves, um, the scene is just truly so rife with good books, like objectively good books. Um, So why do you think that is? What are queer stories (laughs) offering that isn't coming from writers who might not identify this way? Okay, well, first of all, okay, that's a big question. Well, I was going to say, I'm going to say something optimistic first, which is that I'm seeing a much bigger willingness of non-queer people to read queer stories. Mm -hmm. Like, that's amazing. Like, that's so cool. And, um, I, you know, we start with the core, but these, some of the books I've worked on and some of the books I most admire have been embraced by tens and and hundreds of thousands of people that aren't in our community. And I, I think we're seeing a moment. I think Detransition Baby is like the best example of that. Like a book that is uncompromisingly queer in so many yeah. ways. And also so about like Brooklyn. I mean, like it's really like, it's exactly what Tori wanted it to be. And yet, you know, you have, you have book clubs of cis, of cis moms reading it. Like that's the, that's to me, that's the goal where it's like, we're influencing people and it's still uncompromising. Um, that's the shit mm-hmm. I, I try to do now in terms of why queer people, <laughs> I mean, I don't feel, I certainly do not feel prepared to answer that question at all. I think on the one hand, our stories, like the stories of, you know, black folks and native folks like have been underrepresented in the market and in the popular, you know, consciousness forever. Um, and so maybe now there's a rush to get those stories out, but I don't know. We're just, we're the shit. Like I would just be so upset if I was straight, basically. That's, that's the point I'm at in my life. So uh, I would just be so bummed out. You, you know, I, I don't want to give the, the pat explanation of like pain and, you know, like oppression has made us amazing, but like to a certain extent, there is some of that. Um, what's interesting to me is this kind of like rupture a little bit, which I maybe you've seen online between in like the queer literary world of like, I feel like some queer people not accepting that understanding of, of, of queer stories, like rejecting the a little life's, you know, and, and being like, 
our stories are more complex than just trauma porn. And I think, you know, there are others who also rightfully so are like pain and trauma. It's more complex than that. And that's inherent to the queer experience. And um, that is interesting to me. That debate really interests me. Um, I just think queer people are, are cooler than straight people. And that's why, that's why we have better books. Good answer. <laughs> okay, so um, what would you say to young authors who are looking to break into the industry? And by that, I'm literally asking, what are you, Jackson, looking for when you pick up a manuscript? Um, that's a really great question. I, I mean, the first thing I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking for voice, and that is the most subjective thing possible. But I know, I know it when I see it. I can work obviously on grammar, you know, I can work on uh, structure characters, but when you open a book like Johnny Appleseed, right. By Joshua Whitehead. Right. Um, yeah. Or a hundred boyfriends, like that's hitting you from the first page as like, wow, this person again is doubling down on who they are. And is just, this is what their vibe is. I, I just kind of have to be taken by that, by that voice. Um, I like to see characters that, surprise me and that don't play into archetypes um obviously as i'm saying i especially with queer books i am not looking for another painful like coming out novel uh or memoir that's yeah doesn't interest me um but really it's 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 voice and confidence and uh you know a lack of of self-consciousness about doing something that nobody else is doing also uh, an ability to to laugh at themselves even if the book is not funny at all i can totally tell when an author takes themselves too seriously like i have worked on the most (laughs) capital s serious books and the author is you know just cool like like it's just cool like it's like just chill so um um, you know i there are many authors who are very successful out there who i do not think are like this and Clearly it works for them, but I, if I'm going to work with somebody for what is often two or three years at, if per book, right. if we're going to work together forever, hopefully, uh, you got you know, we got to be able to like have a drink. And oftentimes my authors like end up staying on my couch and like hanging out with me. So I need you to not take yourself too seriously. Yeah. <laughs> which is really, I mean, again, a perfect transition into my next question, um, which is the fact that, I mean, your friendship with Brontes Purnell is pretty notorious at this point, I think <laughs> I would say. Um, I was trying to hunt it down because I swear at one point there was a, like a, an actual post. I couldn't find it, but I'm pretty sure Brontes has at least two tattoos that are dedicated to you, <laughs> one on their face. Um, so is no, this relationship not the face, just but there are two. <laughs> okay, yes. see, I knew there were two. I knew there were two. I wasn't sure about the face one. <laughs> you know, um, um, it's like, go, go, go. yeah, yeah, no, I just how that happened. Like, who, I don't know how on earth I was like at the time, like 24, 25, when I met him, like how like a 24 year old, like white Jewish kid from LA and this like you know, mid thirties, black Alabama like Oakland punk legend, like share a brain, but that's just like what, it's just certain things in life do not make sense. And that's one of them. Um, I met him, I met him because um, after I acquired my first book, I was still an editorial assistant, which for those not in the industry is like the lowest rung in editorial. Um, 
a very critical job, but it is like the lowest and you're not necessarily acquiring books at that stage. And so um, I wasn't receiving submissions from agents, which is how I typically acquire books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were sending to higher up editors. I just hadn't made a name for myself. And I read um, Rontez's novel since I laid my burden down. I had no idea who he was, but I, at the time, was really good. And I'm still pretty good at this, but I was, used to be a lot better at reading indie press books that really excited me. Um, that's how I right. met Tori Peters. And um, that's how I've found, you know, my uh, an author of mine, Henry Hoke. And just a, a lot of, especially queer people, you know, publish a lot on the margins until they get swooped up. And so... I read Brontez's book and within like four pages, I was like, this is hands down the craziest shit I've ever read. I am <laughs> laughing my ass off. I, I just need to, like, I don't know what to say about this, but I need to, I need to get involved with this human somehow. So this was like three and a half years ago. And so I, I emailed him in very proper FSG form, you know, like a very long fan note and was like, if you'd like to have a conversation, and I don't know if you, you know, all this stuff. And he just, he wrote back in all caps, like, let's FaceTime, and just gave me his phone number. <laughs> and I was like, okay, word. He tells it, he's, he, his memories is, you know, it's, it's not as good as mine. He, he, he will say that I was like in his DMs being like, hey, like, let's work together. But like, that's very much not what happened. I, I have the proof of this email I sent him. And um, we just started talking and uh, he came and stayed with me in New York. You know, I, I love like punk ass people. Like, I, like my mom was in the record business, has a ton of friends who are musicians, DJs, creators. Like that's just kind of, I grew up in this big ass crazy house in LA where people were coming in and out and performing and partying. And it was like this right. amazing, just creative space. And I, I'm drawn to people like a Brontes who um, basically like almost physically cannot contain their creativity and curiosity. Right. And right. once I was talking to him and he's like, yeah, I'm staying on Kathleen's hand on Kathleen Hannah's couch. And then, you know, I'm designing a t-shirt for this brand Telfar. And then I'm like, and, and he's like, Oh, like, what if I just like came to New York and stayed with you, you know? And like, he just had, and I, it was chaotic and a little like, what the hell? And I was just like, you know what? <laughs> I got nothing else going on. Like I vibe with you. Like, let's, let's see how this goes. And, um, he stayed with me. We had a hilarious weekend, brought him to the, to the gay bar. I really did not know him at this point. Um, the main detail, uh, I remember that he showed up with a loofah. Um, he travels with a loofah everywhere. <laughs> he like has to, he can't shower without one. It was, like, I like walked walk into my shower and there was like this like bright yellow loofah hanging. And I was like, oh, I guess Brontes is here. But more than, <laughs> more than anything, like we, yeah, we partied together, but we talked so much. And um, by the time, and then I got to know his agent who is amazing. And who's also the agent for Nevada for Image and Benny. Um, so I introduced right. the two of them and, by the time there was new material, um, you know, Brontes is somebody who, listen, he's he's HIV positive, he's black, he's from the South, like, he did not go to an MFA program, he has had a wild, winding path through life and to get to where he is, you know, now he's entering these elite institutions, he's performing at MoMA, and he's nominated for the Mark right. Twain Prize, and all this amazing shit is, you know, it's in the New York Times, but, like, that wasn't always the case, and... 
it it I don't even know his full story. Like we I've we've talked a lot, but a lot of mm-hmm. stuff has happened to get to where he is now, and it's not the traditional path. And so, when we were becoming friends, it wasn't like with any goal for me to necessarily like oh I gotta like win him over to get his book, but a certain element of trust has to be there for him, especially you know given I'm like, mm-hmm. like you know this white gay editor like that's not. Right, right, that's right. not the that's that's not his his twin so he you know in a way i feel like he had to suss me out to make sure like okay not only is this person creatively on par with me but like somebody who can advocate for me to the sales team like who can who can understand my work and who could be un- as uncompromising because you know as you know in that book that book is gay as hell and it is i mean the first scene oh yeah is like the guy <laughs> wakes up in bed with this guy with a broken cast after they were like fucked up all night and they had just and the, you know the guy's like go buy me some chicken and then like come over and let's hook up and like i mean it's it's crazy and um so that that kind of trust was established between the two of us and then when the submission when it was sent to me it was it needed a lot of work it was like there were photos mm-hmm. in there of course he was naked in half of them um there were poems in there and then there was a loose structure of of stories but we had to really talk and, and it was his idea to structure it and the three different acts, you know, he's really obsessed with theater and poetry and his interests, like any kind of brilliant person are so wide ranging. And he explained to me his thinking, but I, I really had to, it was the second or third book I bought and I had to go to my boss and be like, look, I know this is kind of a mess right now. And I also know that there is more sex in this book and you have ever encountered and it's also sex it doesn't look like the sex you have ever encountered i was like but if there is a single thing i know it's that this that this is the book like i have to do this and um yeah you know we we made an offer it worked out brontes and i worked on this from for months and i don't know like i'm we just got super close we have so many laughs together i also think i just got into his brain with that book so much. Right, like, right, right. Like on some like completing sentences shit. Like I've, the, the, I don't have another book where like more of my blood is in a book because it's like actually part of me is in that book. And um, yeah, and then it, it's just, I don't have, um, I was going to say, I don't have boundaries. That's terrible. I do have boundaries. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I guess I don't have, it worked out that I was young and queer and had nothing to lose is what I'm trying to say. That like maybe right, a different editor right. at a different stage wouldn't be like cool with Brontes coming to stay on his couch like every other month basically and we were doing that while we were working on the book and we would work in person on the book and then we would go hang out with Telfar or hang out with you know all these cool people who ended up becoming instrumental in promoting the book like he he's somebody who what he loves he loves hard and he brought me into his world and that was why we were able to kind of unite all the disparate factions of like Brontes fandom. Like he had a bunch of Instagram followers, but he had never sold what we've sold with this book. I mean, like we're in our fourth printing of this book, right. which is insane. And Oh, we um, move it like crazy here. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. It's 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 wild. So he um it required collaboration. We like we're like brothers at this point. Like we we are just so close. And that book it changed my life. It, it, it changed my career mm-hmm. in a huge way. And it really changed mm-hmm. his life. I mean, the TV rights were bought um, by Jeremy O'Harris. The, yeah. you know, we, we yeah. did a huge event at, at MoMA. Um, we're still promoting this book. He won the Lambda award a week ago. And this book came out in February, 2021. Yeah. Like it now he's written on three TV shows, like everything changed with this book. And so that was his way of like, 
you know, just being like, I love you. And so that's how I understood it. Um, and yeah, that's it. There's a whole other story with the other tattoo, but I'm not, I know we have other stuff to talk about and that's not, it's not as appropriate for, uh, sound waves. So (laughs) I'll tell you in the DMs. I mean, perfect. Please do. Um, I mean, just my favorite thing about this exchange and about this portion of our episode is, um, I literally never even made it to my question. I just brought up Brontes (laughs) and you launched into it, baby. No, it's perfect. It's totally fine. (laughs) I love that we just got like a full load on a lowdown on, um, like the publishing process of, a hundred boyfriends and what you're and that is just the surface i mean there's there's a lot of antics there are a lot of <laughs> antics and behind the scenes chaos that i that you can imagine from reading that book and from following him on instagram so jumping totally away from that now um i want to hear about uh your reading habits because hmm. i'm always kind of curious how different people in the industry get this done um and for you as an editor is there a balance of reading for pleasure and reading for work? Like, is there a constant stack of manuscripts just piling up or right. are things vetted for you? How, right. how, how is your reading life? My reading life is, is terrible. Like it, it's honestly, I, it's maybe the hardest part of my job because I, <laughs> it really is because like, obviously I have a huge stack of books on my nightstand. Like everybody does that I'm buying yeah. in indie bookstores, but it's a few things. On the one hand, when an agent sends me something, like I really do want to give a manuscript my undivided attention. Like I, I, I want to see the potential in it. Most of the time I'm passing on things just naturally. But I, I still want to be in a mind state where I can, you know, give half an hour, give an hour just to see if this is something I could be into. Mm-hmm. So th- that is so energy sapping. You know what I mean? Like I can't do that all day. Like I, you, you could read an amazing book for a lot of the day when I'm reading sub- submission after submission after submission, I, it requires so much brain power that like, I can't do it all day. So I'm constantly trying to figure out when to read. I read on the train. I read on the weekends. I try to read in the office. It's just, it's just hard. It also depends on the agent. If they have interest, if they're rushing me, whatever, but I love reading for pleasure. This job hasn't necessarily ruined that for me, but it's impossible mm-hmm. for me to read like, in a vacuum, basically. Like I, right? you know, like I, I want to read things and I read books from all different countries and all different eras, but everything I read is going to inform my taste and going to inform how I do my job. And so oftentimes I'll get a galley, you know, early copy from another editor. I mean, I get sent like five, I probably get sent like 10 or 15 books a month from other editors and writers who I know who want to send me their books. And you know, sometimes I'll post them because like, I guess like I have like people in publishing who follow me on social media. So they want, especially the queers. And so they want me to post that shit. But I, I also like knowing, you know, if I'm, if I'm comparing one of my books to somebody or if I'm asking somebody for a blurb, like I do want to know about the books. Like I want to know why something is such a big deal. Um, If it's a press, I love like new directions, you know, or if it's Coraldo or whatever, like a smaller press, like, I want to check their shit out because I know almost everything they do is, is going to be insane. There's certain ways I prioritize things, but it's, it's a total grab back. It's totally out of control right now. I'm reading a galley from Astra house, which is great because my old coworker and friend edited it. Um, I'm reading the Rachel Aviv galley, which FSG is doing. 
I'm trying to read, I try to read the other FSG books to like support my colleagues and right, to know right, what the right. house is doing. But then also like I, I read indie books. I, you know, I read, I, I read a bunch of Gail Jones last year and I, I read stuff that in theory doesn't have to do with my day to day, but always ends up coming around. I mean, I'm sure you know what, like how that is. Like when you read a book and then suddenly you end up like bringing it up everywhere or it becomes relevant everywhere. And like, I really feel like that when I read Gentrification of the Mind by Sarah Shulman a few years ago. And I, I read it because I was working with her, right. but then I was like, holy shit, like this mm-hmm. is everywhere. So um, realistically though, I do not finish a lot of books. <laughs> like it sucks. And I never thought I'd be that reader. Um, with fiction, uh, it's it's very mm-hmm. hard. I mean, I just read an Alan Hollinghurst book, his second book. So I guess that was like from the 90s and Took, it took me like two yeah. months to read also because I savor like every sentence he writes, but it just, I, I don't, sometimes when I come home, I just like want to have a drink and pass out. So um, my reading habits are very up and down. I go to Provincetown every year for vacation and I end up reading like three books while I'm there. Um, while my friends right. are like partying on the beach and like yelling <laughs> at me, like I'm like, shut up. This is my one time to actually read the shit I want to read. So <laughs> Um, I have a list. Um, it's overwhelming. People who don't know me come over and like laugh at it. It's always tipping over. But um, I do miss reading for fun. I really do. And it makes every time I read something for fun, it makes me a better editor. And like I tell everybody that. I tell all the assistants mm-hmm. that. I'm like, if you're just only reading for work on the weekends, like you're going to lose a desire to work in this job, not to mention like not be able to be good at it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I try and spread my attention out, but I don't have a lot of it. <laughs> I don't have a lot of it at the end of the day. I am just like zapped. Um, I'm totally Yeah, no, zapped. I mean, it's really funny. It's funny that you say that too, because like, I think I relate a lot. Maybe I was asking this question just to kind of also get validation. I was going to say, I'm yeah, you want me to make, kind of a, you, want me to make kind you feel Kind of a better. bad reader. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um, because it is also just when you work in this industry, it's really, and it's something that you don't realize is going to happen, but yeah there are just so many books at your disposal and there's so much content kind of at your disposal that it becomes kind of overwhelming. And I also had like earlier this year, I started having just like, like not actual, but like low level panic attacks about just the vast scope fully of, 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 of things that are out there that I'm never even going to be able to pick up. Like when am I going to be able to go back and read like some book from even like, 2010 that I want to read uh, no, so badly, exactly. but it's just like, when am I exactly. going to between the stuff that's coming out and the stuff that just came out and the stuff that's literally out today? Like it's what impossible. What am I going to do? And for your job, you really like, you have to know the shit that you're hand selling. But for me, like, I mean, I've only read, yeah, like, totally. you know, I've only read like two Philip Roth books. Like that makes me feel like a terrible fucking editor. Like, and then there are huge like titans of literature that I have, not read, you know, and there are these, there are big yeah. authors who I love, who I've not been able to read and who I've met in person and know at parties and, you know, whatever, like, but I've still never been able to read their work. It's <laughs> just, just like, Oh, sorry. I'm like, sorry. I just haven't had time. I mean, think about how long a book takes. Like you can watch a movie in two hours. You can totally. listen to an album in an hour, but like, <laughs> girl, I'm not sitting down and just reading a book, like cover to cover. Like, it's just like, I, I can't do that right now. So the, you know, everybody just has to understand that. And mostly people do. Um, I try and prioritize, but sometimes I'm just not going to get to some shit. Um, and everybody has to be okay with that. 
Okay, so totally leaving uh, books for a second. Uh, you have written for a variety of publications, um, and you did mention at the top of this interview, and I do want to chat about your relationship to uh, Pitchfork and to music writing. Um, specifically, we've talked about what you look for in a manuscript and in writing. Uh, what are you looking for when you write about music? What does an album need to get a 10 out of 10 rating from Jackson <laughs> Howard? Okay. First of all, I don't have, like, when I write for Pitchfork, which I I don't as much anymore because I just don't have to, I, I had to just, I had to choose myself. Um, I had to, I had to choose, <laughs> you know, my own time and happiness. Uh, <clears throat> but when I write for them and I still love doing it, it's, it's not, um, I suggest a score and Pitchfork has their own internal rating system, which is top secret and collaborative and up for debate and all these different things. And so, um, especially with a lower profile album, usually the score I recommend is accepted, but, um, they understandably take that seriously and I respect it a lot. Um, Writing, I don't know, I don't want to say that there's something that gets a 10 out of 10, because I'm not really interested. The reason I like writing for Pitchfork is because it's not only about, like, this is good, this is bad. Like, the reason I like writing for Pitchfork and then Mm -hmm. places like The Ringer or The Times Magazine is, like, I get to nerd out on music. And even if there's an album that I'm trashing, basically, like, Shaka Khan is one of my favorite singers ever, released this terrible album, like, two years ago or something, and I gave it, like, a 5.1, like, something so sacrilegious, but what that allowed me to do is, like, I, you know, I watched her singing at Aretha's funeral, like, I got to go back and listen to all of her, her, you know, her catalog, and, like, that's why I like writing for Pitchfork, and so, yeah, because I get, I get to nerd out and, like, talk the way I'm talking to you right now, where I get so excited about music, so, um, I'm, you know, I'm a hip hop nerd. I'm an R&B nerd. I've like my entire childhood. I was the kid like reading the liner notes and looking at the production credits. And like, I still am that person. Um, I have a group chat with like three straight guys. I love uh, two who are critics and about hip hop. And it's just awesome. And we don't talk, you know, my personal life bleeds into it. I'm like, I'm off the radar this weekend. It's pride. Um, also, none of you shit talk the Beyonce single or I'm leaving the chat. But for the most part, <laughs> um, for the most part, it's just hip hop and yeah, I, I don't I don't have a, a universal standard. I, I just really love geeking out. And the reason I guess I I also have not written for Pitchfork as much is because their their opinions really matter and I I wanna make sure I can, you know, really do an artist justice. I'm also never I'm not gonna claim I'm the best writer. Like I I love to write. I think I'm when I'm good, I think I'm good, but there are writers out there who are just like friends of mine who just have my jaw on the floor when they write criticism and that yeah. is never going to be my aim. Um, again, I do it as a fan and as a nerd and, that, and that's why I like these days, you know, I'll write for the times magazine for the music issue because I get to like appreciate something or the ringer will let me like write 5,000 words about an album from the seventies or right. from the nineties or something like that's kind of all I like to do. Criticism is stressful. And then you have stands on Twitter, like coming after you. Sometimes you have the artists themselves coming after you. <laughs> um, the publicist, like it's just, it's just too much. And so, um, you know, respect to everybody on the staff there, but I, it's, it, it gets stressful for me. <laughs> okay. So on a final note now, um, this is kind of a big question, but I mean, if you could give me your slim answer, uh, what are you hoping the future of publishing looks like? Like what is, what are your blue sky hopes for the industry 
moving forward? Um, I want everybody to get paid. <laughs> and that means workers and that means authors um, and agents, of course, too. But uh, I want workers to get paid and I want them to be recognized. And I want the gaps between the high and the low uh, to be kind of eradicated in terms of hierarchies. Um, I think we lose a lot of amazing talent disproportionately non-white people, non-straight people, non-cis people, because everything from the money is terrible to the conditions are oppressive or to just simply there aren't mentors present to um, help people. So I want people to stay and I want people to make money. Um, that's how we change our industry. I can want a ton of other things for on the writing side, but from a strictly like commercial how this whole situation works point of view. Uh, I, you know, yeah, I want the workers to be taken care of. I also, you know, I want more, um, I want more outlets reviewing books. Like I, I don't want it to feel like a mm-hmm. scarcity mentality in terms of authors. Like it's great. That there's competition. I want everybody to win though. So, you know, more people should be like the Atlantic just opened up their book coverage. New York mag just did a lot more. The New Yorker right. still does great stuff, but uh, there <laughs> is. I want more young people reviewing books and talking about books. And the way that's going to happen, though, it's not through TikTok. Um, and that's a whole other thing we didn't even get right. into right now, which I'm. It's, <laughs> it's probably good because it's already been an hour. But um, that's yeah, no comment. Uh, it's going to be through books that break molds and books that are actually marketed to readers and not through morning shows and that means you know no shaves that can do stuff too or celebrity book clubs but it's like actually inspiring people to read and yeah i want young people i want my friends involved obviously around me my friends i'll read now because i force them to but uh everybody wants to read (laughs) i'm really a firm believer of that like everybody there's a book for everybody and i want that to happen but less idealistically yeah i want uh I want this shit to look more like the rest of the world. I don't want it to be so white and straight and rich. And um, I want everybody to get a shot. You know, access is the main thing. Like there is racial access, but there's also socioeconomic stuff behind the scenes. Like there's a lot of stuff I want to fix, but I really (laughs) do think we're in a good moment. Like I, you can only be in this job if you're optimistic and idealistic. And I, I believe so much in what I do. And I believe so much in the authors I publish and you know, publishing financially is doing super well right now uh, from mm-hmm, a corporate mm-hmm. point of view. I don't, you know, th- that money needs to be spread, spread around. Um, but yeah, I think we're in a good moment. I think people, like I said, straight people want to read queer books. White people are reading the unwhite books. Like we are breaking out of these molds yeah. book by book and we are so not there, but it really feels like we have a shot to make it happen. And I, I just want, I want everybody to stay focused and, uh, keep this shit going because you know the old (laughs) the people who think that uh white men have it hard on the publishing front like those people are going to be out of the game at some point and so it's on us it's on us now like your you know like your bookstore and your book selling and like the editors that i admire and work the editors i work for and that i look up to like it's on all of us to like take that opportunity and 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 just change this shit so that's like the quiet energy constantly bubbling underneath my stress and complaining, I would say. Well, 
Jackson, thank you so, so much. This was an absolute blast. And um, I don't know, maybe in the future we'll uh, plan a Jackson Howard. I want to come. I want to come to Montreal. I mean, come to Montreal. Absolutely. I want to like just hear you talk about TikTok uh, some other time when we have more time. <laughs> I just I, now I'm itching for it. I want to come to Montreal. I, I, I want to I hit the gay club. I want to hit the clubs. I know I know there's all kinds of gay shenanigans going on up there. Oh, yeah. We got a whole village for it. You'll love okay. it. Okay, say less. I'm there. <laughs> I'll let you know. Okay, thank you so much, Jackson. Thank you, listeners. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> <laughs>